Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, the podcast that helps anyone who identifies with the symptoms and traits of borderline personality disorder overcome their biggest obstacle, themselves. I'm your host, Molly, and I'm here to help you realize that anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Welcome back to the podcast, my beautiful listener. In this episode, we welcome back to the podcast personality disorder expert, Dr. Daniel Fox. Dr. Fox is a licensed psychologist, international speaker, and award-winning author of the Borderline Personality Workbook, which you may have heard of. It's very popular. And also his newest book, Complex Personality Disorder, How Coexisting Conditions Affect Your BPD, and How You Can Gain Emotional Balance. In this interview with Dr. Fox, the two of us discuss how common it is for people with BPD symptoms to feel like they are irreparably and permanently broken. Through an exploration of the concepts in his new book, and by answering some questions from my podcast listeners, Dan and I dive deep into the feelings of shame and guilt that stem from the childhood abuse and neglect that eventually lead to the development of BPD traits, as well as the explosive and impulsive behaviors that often sabotage our attempts to connect with the people we love as adults. The goal of this episode is to help you see that you already have inside of you all that you need to begin putting the broken pieces of yourself back together and offer yourself the self-compassion and forgiveness required to really start healing in a meaningful way. As Dan puts it, you're not a horrible person, you are a person. Let's talk a little bit about the concepts and topics that we'll explore in this episode with Dan. We'll be diving into what exactly is complex BPD and why aren't more people talking about it. This leads to us talking more about the comorbid conditions and symptoms that most commonly occur with BPD traits because BPD, as Dr. Fox explains, does not happen in a vacuum. We also talk about a commonly asked question, what's the difference between bipolar disorder and BPD and why are so many people misdiagnosed as bipolar early on in their recovery journeys? Dan and I also talk about how to find the best therapist for BPD and how to know when a mental health provider might not be a good fit for you or your loved one. Dan and I finish our conversation by answering a couple of voicemail questions from my listeners. The first one centers around coping with toxic shame and how it relates to BPD symptoms, as well as how to talk and open up to our parents about BPD symptomology and the neglect and abuse we suffered in our childhoods. If these topics are of interest to you, I highly recommend you listen to the very end of the episode so that you can get the full value of our conversation. Before I dive into my interview with Dr. Fox, I want to speak a bit about what's happening over on the premium access version of the podcast. As my long-term listeners will know, each week I provide my premium subscribers with additional bonus content. The past few weeks, we have embarked upon a journey together 
through a multi-episode series that I've been dropping each week for my premium subscribers dedicated to helping them walk through what's called the hero's journey. I am of the firm belief that it is a disconnection from our gut feeling or intuition that leads to most of our psychological suffering, which displays as BPD symptoms. It is this disconnection from our gut feeling that causes us to continuously repeat the self-sabotaging patterns that are keeping us stuck. I am a huge fan of Carl Jung and also the author Joseph Campbell, who believed very deeply in the healing power of symbolism, archetypes, in the concept of the hero's journey. And in these bonus episodes, I've been walking my premium subscribers through each step. This involves diving into archetypes, mythology, folklore, and guided visualizations, and even journaling exercises that I provide for you. And I wanted to take the time to read a couple of recent listener emails that I've received from my premium subscribers in the last couple of weeks that show the powerful impact this process is having on them. To protect the identity of my premium subscribers, I will not read their names, but I will just refer to them by their first initial. The first email is from my subscriber, W. She says, Hi Molly, it's taken me a week to work up the willpower to send you a message about the episodes, but I'm finally doing it. Please continue with the Hero's Journey podcasts. I've always been interested in tarot and have several decks myself, but it's so wonderful having someone actually walk through it the way you do. As mentioned before, I'm going through a separation and I'm truly in rock bottom. This year, I started doing a whole whack of things, including hard drugs and alcohol, because I'm in so much pain. The Hero's Journey episodes are really touching me, particularly the part about the white rose. In Chinese culture, white flowers represent death, and this is the first image that came to mind alongside beauty. The idea that what I thought about the rose being what I actually feel about my spirituality really resonated with me, and I've been thinking about it in the episode all week. I've always felt, like you, that myth and spirituality was a bit woo-woo, but at the same time, I've always felt that it was a beautiful way to reframe situations or to look at things from a different perspective. I've listened to these recent episodes almost every night to fall asleep since you uploaded them. The quotes you chose really touched me, and the first few nights I cried myself to sleep listening to them. I would love more of these episodes. Since my separation, I've never felt so alone, so in the pit of emptiness, and in so much pain. I meet it from every piece of my fiber when I say that you've been able to shine some light into what has been the darkest part of my life. It's been a struggle this week to even get out of bed, and these episodes have brought me some peace. Thank you, and I love you for everything you do. Thank you, W. You know exactly who you are, and these emails truly mean the world to me. The last email that I'll read about the Hero's Journey series is from another premium subscriber who I will call S. S writes, Hey Molly, I waited until I had some quiet time to myself to focus so I could go back and listen to the Hero's Journey episodes, and of course starting with episode one, and I'm so glad I did. Something about this topic, the images and the myths and the folk tales, has always grabbed at me, pulled at the heel of my boot, and made me think twice. But I never wanted to dive too deep because I think subconsciously I was turned off by the woo-woo-ness of it all, which I found to be over the top and kind of embarrassing. But as I listened to your podcast from the very beginning and joined you on this journey, I too started to feel like there's something here that I need to figure out. But I see now that I was also stuck. I wasn't sure how to go about it and not sure I had the confidence to seek it out on my own, even though I knew deep down that I should. So here's the thing. I journaled throughout your episode, which for the record, I literally never, ever do because it feels like torture to me. Meanwhile, at my day job, I'm living my dream as a professional writer. What can I say? I love a cliche. I started as I usually do, begrudgingly and a little dubious to be honest, but I thought, F it. 
I'm going to roll with this for my girl Molly because she hasn't done me wrong so far. Maybe this will actually do something. Maybe it will actually work, whatever that means. Well, let me tell you, something definitely worked. My ongoing dread of journaling totally dissipated as I went through each of the exercises. I just got lost in doing it, which is amazing to me. And you were right. You can't fake this stuff. Sometimes I had to go back and re-listen and jot things down, which normally would aggravate me, and it did at first, of course. My always helpful inner critic popped by to tell me that my penmanship is sloppy and that I'm being a weird woo-woo dork for even bothering with this. But I wanted to, because I wanted to get as much out of it as possible, and because I know it's what I need, you know? I never email my comments. I'm more of a silent type. I've been around since the very early days of the podcast and it feels very much like we've been on a similar trajectory in a lot of ways. I feel like I got here to the hero's journey right on time. Profound insights have already been had and I know that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Thank you for undertaking this series of episodes. It is a lot of work, girl, and we... I'm just going to go ahead and make this blanket statement on behalf of all of your listeners because I feel like it's accurate. We know it and we appreciate it so much. I really think what you're creating and putting out there for us and truly for everyone, because this is not just about a thing that we call BPD, is beyond valuable and has the direct power, and I sincerely mean this in a big picture kind of way, to affect the world around us. The knowledge you're sharing, it's almost like it got lost really really lost and society was able to just like fumble around in the darkness and do their best for a while before all that wisdom was lost or disappeared who the hell knows what happened but you are bringing it back to the light girl and we as a collective my babe effing needed this look i promise i'm not trying to pump your tires here a long time ago you posted something on instagram that resonated with me so deeply it was the only other time i think i left a comment And I wrote, you are on your right path, girl. Thank you for this, because I felt that, and I still do. Thanks, Molly. I just want to thank these two listeners. They know exactly who they are. They've been riding with the podcast for a long time. And something that stood out to me about both of their emails is that they both said that they were really hesitant to dive into archetypes, mythology, and symbolism, and spirituality because it just felt like woo-woo shit. And I am previously the biggest skeptic in existence about these things. But in the Hero's Journey episodes, I try to make this as grounded as possible. None of this stuff is going to be a magical cure. None of this stuff is predicting your future or anything like that. It's just an ability to more deeply connect with your gut feelings, with the childlike part of you that once believed in something magical, and to really connect with your subconscious and unconscious minds. It's powerful stuff, and as both of these listeners shared with you in these lovely emails, you just have to do it to believe it. And once you feel it, you know you know that there's something there. So if you're ready to dive into something really different, if you felt like nothing has quote-unquote worked so far for you in the traditional space of mental health and viewing your symptoms as medicalized pathology, I highly encourage you to subscribe to my premium content and check out the first few episodes of The Hero's Journey and really absorb yourself into it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts after you do. Thank you for your patience in this longer than normal introduction, but I throw everything I have into these episodes and I believe so deeply that this information and this content can really impact some powerful healing work. So if you'd like to learn more, and subscribe to my premium content and dig into these episodes, you can do that at backfromtheborderline.com by clicking unlock premium access or clicking the link in the description of this episode. So now, without further ado, let's dive into my interview with personality disorder expert, licensed clinical psychologist, award-winning author, and all-around really fantastic person, 
Dr. Daniel Fox. Hi, Molly. It's great to see you again. So uh, my name is, is Dr. Daniel Fox. Uh, so I'm a psychologist here in Texas, and um, I specialize in personality disorders, specifically narcissistic and borderline personality disorder. Um, I have several publications, uh, as well as an ongoing and active uh, YouTube channel as well. Uh, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Yes, everyone has loved our episode, and I've had so many new listeners come to the podcast because they found me via your YouTube channel. So I really appreciate that. You've been busy because you have a book that you've put out this year called Complex Borderline Personality Disorder, and then an upcoming BPD card deck. But I'd really love to talk a little bit about your newer book. Many of my listeners have read or have used your borderline personality workbook. It's a very commonly referenced book that my listeners bring up, but your newer book, Complex Complex Borderline Personality Disorder, I finished and it was just so fantastic. And I'd love to ask you, what inspired you to want to write about complex BPD? Because so many people know about complex PTSD, Mm -hmm. but- what inspired complex borderline personality disorder as a topic? Yeah, thanks, thanks. Yeah, no, and and that that's a great question. And I think um, so. The the impetus for for that book was actually that in talking with with a lot of individuals, whether um, it was on podcasts or whether it was for interviews or for articles or, or things of that nature, people kept seemed to conceptualize BPD that, oh, if you have BPD, then that encompasses all those other issues, all that depression, all that PTSD, all of these other factors. And it seemed like that they were sort of limiting their perspective on just BPD. And it's like, well, but if if you do that, you're missing additional components. And the way that I conceptualized BPD and, and as well as, you know, some of the the big writers in the field, whether it's uh, Marshall Linehan or it's uh, John Gunderson um, and and others, we see it as a dual construct, not a single construct. And what that means is, is that there's two layers, right? You have core content and surface content. And I think that if, if you look at BPD as BPD alone, which is like just one thing, if you have BPD, then you have BPD and there's nothing else associated with it. You miss the mark. And I think that adds to the difficulty in not only diagnosis, but in treatment as well. So when I do consultation sessions with individuals who are trying to identify issues that they're having or um, other other mental health issues they may have, or they want to confirm if if BPD is actually present or not, um, when we do that, more often than not, there are additional comorbid conditions. And so I thought, well, how can I write this in a way that not only can convey this information to the clients, but also the mental health practitioners as well. I think because there's nothing out there that looks at BPD as well as those comorbid conditions, which is ADHD, psychosis, major depressive disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, um, uh, dissociation, dissociative identity disorder. And I don't, and I'd, I'd like to say it as a caveat, so I don't have a whole chapter just on dissociative identity disorder, but we do talk about within uh, the issue of of psychosis and detachment, that that happens. But you can't just say, oh, well, dissociation is part of BPD, so it encompasses only BPD. Well, that's it's an oversimplification of a very, very complex disorder. So I think that all of us, whether we're mental health providers or clients, have to look at the complexity of BPD and understand that there's a greater likelihood of comorbid conditions that have to be addressed. And those comorbid conditions really do determine that trajectory of treatment based on what comorbid conditions are present. I loved how you structured the book because it was every single different comorbid comorbid condition. You sort of told like a vignette about what the patient would um, appear like if they just had just that condition. So maybe like bipolar, for example, we'll take, and I think bipolar is a good example because I feel like a lot of us who identify with BPD have been at one point misdiagnosed maybe with something like bipolar. I feel like I've heard that a lot. I myself was uh, diagnosed with uh, bipolar two when I first uh, kind of found myself in the mental health system. And 
I love that you gave the vignette of here's how a person may display with simply bipolar. And then here's what it would look like with BPD and bipolar, seeing it in those vignettes and seeing those subtle differences of how they're like, I don't like to use the word breakdown, but it's kind of like they're a really big crisis point. You know, you kind of displayed like what their crisis points would look like. It helps people understand it more, so much more than just academic terms. That was really the point is I I wanted to make it, you know, consumable for, for folks who may be in that situation, who may be unsure. And people write me often through, through the YouTube channel and say, well, I've been diagnosed with, you know, PTSD, bipolar disorder, bipolar mm-hmm. two. And the research, it depends upon which, which sect you're kind of looking at. And people have said, well, borderline personality disorder isn't real because it's really just bipolar two disorder. But if, if you put the criteria next to, next to BPD, you realize that they're vastly different. A lot of times, even with, with BPD, we're still fighting that stigma. And I think the more genuine information we can put out there, the less that stigma is perpetuated, even though it is also perpetuated in graduate schools as well. And that's a big problem. Um, so all of all, a lot of my work is really geared towards lessening that stigma, adding the sense of reality, you know, that remissions, 80% of individuals with BPD experience remissions. And out of that 80%, only 15% will, will experience a resurgence of symptoms. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. Individuals with with BPD are exceptionally likely to experience major depressive disorder. But all individuals with BPD experience depressive spirals. So what happens is a depressive spiral is it's, it's a low, but not a low low that interferes with your ability to take care of your kids or your family or yourself. But a major depressive disorder does. So it's worse, but we're going to see those depressive spirals. And I think what a lot of mental health providers see is that they see, oh, well, here's this depressive spiral. So you're getting into a major depressive episode. But that isn't true because over time, with skills, you can manage the depression. Now, I'm not not saying any people should stop their medication or anything like that. But if an individual has BPD and major depressive disorder, not bipolar, because bipolar needs to be controlled first, but if it's major depressive disorder and BPD, the BPD drives the major depressive disorder. So that's where we would address BPD first to lessen the major depressive disorder. So it's so different based upon what those comorbid conditions are. And I think that the vignettes hopefully, you know, provided that. It's not like it provided that that for you. And that's awesome. That was exactly my goal is to clarify. If everything I said, you know, sounds a little... Like what, what, just go back and re-listen, you know, go back and, and pair it with, okay, oh, this is what he's saying. So bipolar, those symptoms like psychosis need to be controlled first, but there are particular comorbid conditions that are driven by the BPD. So BPD has to be um, addressed first. And that's why, you know, the book, I, I really tried to, to just lay it out. And then I think in the last chapter, it's like, well, there isn't just going to be one comorbid condition. What do you do? when there are multiple comorbid conditions. And so I, I, I address that as well, because that's also likely it's not, again, it's BPD is a complex disorder. We are all wired so differently. One thing that works amazingly for someone and maybe one therapist that works a certain way could be great for someone. And another person that goes to them could maybe feel like broken and unfixable, but it's just a matter of they're not, it's not the right ingredients. Yeah, yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And in many ways, it's, it's like, it's like finding, you know, a non-intimate partner, right? It's, you yeah. know, when, when you're finding your, that mental health provider, you know, there's going to be people who, who don't understand BPD. There are mental health providers who are afraid of it. And there's some who understand it and are, you know, willing to work on it. So it's finding that mental health provider who suits you. But the issue, of course, with, with BPD is that tendency to have that externalized validation, right? So you go to this mental health provider who's supposed to be perhaps an expert or understands BPD and you go there and they're like, oh no, I don't, I don't work with that. And you're like, what? So you internalize that to mean, oh, I must be so broken and so horrible. No one will work with me. Then it, be, it becomes generalized. But that, that, that isn't the case. It's, it's certainly difficult and challenging to find somebody who is good, I think, at, at treating B, BPD. But I think it's it can be quite challenging to find a good mental health provider. 
So I, I think, you know, and I'm not, not saying there's a lot of bad ones out there, but just, just like you're saying, find ones that fit. It's also just, you know, people are different. It's not like someone is a bad mental health practitioner, but there are better ones than others. You know, there are better doctors than others. There's a better um, massage therapist than others. Some right. people throw a lot of time and energy and passion into continuing education. And then some people don't, even when I was in school, you could tell, even as a kid, the teachers that were really passionate about what they did. And then the teachers that kind of stopped caring like 10 or 15 years ago, and they've been teaching the same curriculum, you know, and I feel like mental health providers are no different. You know, some people continue their education passionately and some kind of remain stagnant. Yeah. Yep. And they, and they float, you know, they, they kind of, they're, they're burned out. So they just, they just float down. And, you know, I also do uh, trainings with, with mental health providers. And I always talk about, I said, you know, um, when we work with clients that are along any personality disorder spectrum, we mental health providers are at a higher likelihood of burnout and they need to be aware of it. And you, you need to look at certainly those identifiers. But then I tell them, Wells Fargo or whoever holds your mortgage doesn't care if you're burnt out or not. So from the mental health provider perspective, like I, I understand that need to keep seeing clients, but it's our job as ethical mental health providers to be aware of it and to adjust. Sometimes it's adjusting our schedule. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's limiting our schedule. I mean, that, that, that's something, you know, that, that I'm, I'm starting pretty soon is I'm going from seven days a week to, to, to three days a week. You work um, seven but, days a week, Dan? Yeah, I work seven days a week, about 14 hours a day. And wow. Um, some days it's only nine hours a day. Most. Oh, so that's, you underachiever like, you. Almost, yeah. Um, and I've been doing that for, for about 20 years. And wow. um, so, but in order for me to take care of myself, and before I get sick, I, I believe that, that we should be more preemptive, which mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, certainly in the, in the U.S. And, and in Europe, we're very reactive. And I think if you look at it from, from a BPD perspective, that reactive is really problematic because then you get stuck, stuck with short-term rewards, long-term consequences. But if you can be preemptive, you can manage those things and increase the likelihood and probability of short-term rewards and long-term rewards. So for me and other mental health providers, I think we have to look at, wait, you know, are we getting burnt out? And if we are, how can we adjust that? And sometimes yeah. it's, it's adjustment in lifestyle, things like that. But if we don't do it, but yet we preach to our clients, self-care, having value and all this other stuff, if, if you're not living it, you shouldn't be preaching it. And so that's, that, that's kind of my perspective. I can tell you that my, my clients are not, uh, are not pleased with me, you know, um, shortening my, my, uh, my, my work day, but um, but I think it, it'll, I'll be able to maintain the level of care. Yes. And the last thing I want to do is start to just float. Yeah. And I think I also want to extend a ton of compassion and empathy out to mental health providers too, because there are some that are in public systems, like social, social workers and people that have like huge caseloads and they are unable, you know, even to, to decrease that work. And we have such overwhelmed and underfunded systems everywhere in the world. And it, and it's just so, so difficult and it's not good for the practitioners or, or even the, the people seeing them. So yeah, my heart I, goes out to them. Absolutely. And, and you know what, what's interesting. So yesterday um, we were doing an assessment in, in my practice with, um, with a gentleman and his husband was there and they've been together 20, 22 years. And, you know, and, and the, this individual has, uh, very, very severe medical issues and things mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, so we're, we're, we're going, going through the, the assessment and, and he's like, you know, I, I'm trying to hang on to my insurance and, and I don't take insurance. So I'm, and he's like, you know, we've been saving up to come and see you. And, and, and he has, you know, he has breathing tubes and, and uh, he has a walker and, and, um, and he's, he's my age. I mean, he's, he's, he's 52 and his partner, you know, his, his husband is helps him function throughout the day. And it's mm. like, wow, we're in the wealthiest country in the world. And, and it's not like we're newly wealthy. Right. And, yeah. but our healthcare system is deplorable. It is. And, 
And, and, you know, and certainly, you know, we, we can blame, you know, the politicians and Senate and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get political. Well, I'm not going to do it, but I'm just it's okay. Say, me neither. <laughs> I, I, I think that it's us. I, I, I think that we, we need to, to vote. I, I think that we, we have to become more involved. And yeah. um, if we're not involved, then we don't have a voice. I mean, you know, you, you can sit home and complain all you want, but you have to get out and do something. And that's very similar to BPD treatment as well. It's like, yeah. you know, we, we, we can take in a lot of information, but we have to have a sense of activation. And, and I recognize that, that that's hard, especially when you have that family in the head, right? It's that chorus that's, that's in your brain that's saying you have no value, that you are broken, that see no mental health providers want to work with you. See, you know, you don't have insurance. No one's going to see you. No one is going to do this, that, or the other thing. And, but we have to learn to push back on those things as yes. hard as it is. And, you know, getting over managing, dealing with, with BPD is exceptionally difficult, but not Absolutely. impossible. No, it's not. And, you know, I feel like I was a musician in, um, when I was, uh, about 10 or so years ago, I, and I had record label interviews. Like I had a manager when I was living in LA and London and I, but I remember, going to different meetings and I was turned down so many times. And, you know, I'd written a ton of music and sitting there in front of people that are judging you and playing your music and having them and then waiting for the decision afterwards and hearing no, 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 you know, especially that was at the height of like my BPD symptoms, I think. And I had no idea what it was really going on. So can you even imagine just like that rejection at such a grand scale of like showing your most vulnerable work, like your, your songs you've written. And, but I kept going and going and going. And finally I ended up like getting to a label meeting and they loved my stuff. Right. And I didn't ever end up signing a record deal. And in retrospect, I'm really glad I didn't because I could do a whole episode on how messy the entertainment industry is, but (laughs) needless to say, there a, a bunch of groups, different groups of people really didn't like, or connect with my music. And then if I would have stopped, I wouldn't have made it to the time where I found the group of people that really did. And I feel like it's a nice metaphor for mental health treatment too, right? You could go to a bunch of different therapists and then the right one is the right fit. You have to keep going until you find the right fit and not take no for an answer or you're broken for an answer. Because if you hear you're broken or you're ugly from one person, that's just one person's opinion. That doesn't define you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I won't say her, her, her last name. Right. But so we'll, we'll talk about Jill. So Jill, right. When, when I was in middle school, a big crush on Jill and I saved up all my money and I bought this gold bracelet. Right. So I saved up all my money and, you know, I had a big crush on Jill and I went in, you know, and I, I gave it to her because in the morning of middle school, you know, she was one of the helpers and she would help, you know, the teacher and stuff. So I would go in there, I got up this courage, you know, and and so it, it's like the early eighties, you know, so I got a big fro going on and all this <laughs> stuff. you know, I'm really styling as much as I possibly could. For Amazing. Early and, you know, so I go in, you know, and she comes to the door, you know, you knock on the door, she comes to the door, she opens it a little bit. She says, Hey, you know, we were kind of like friends, you know, we'd see each other in the hallway. What's up? And um, so I gave her the box and I remember she opened it and she looked so like just freaked out, weirded out. And I interpreted, of course, that, oh, you know, right. She didn't like me and stuff like that. And, and she didn't. And then <laughs> she I, don't, I don't, I don't want it. And she didn't. And, <laughs> um, and she didn't want it. She gave it back to me, you know, and stuff like that. And I remember like just being heartbroken and, and I, I, I was talking to my dad and I said, Oh, I said, you know, I, I'll probably, you know, no one wants to date me and, you know, da, 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 da. you know, all, all those, those, those early yeah. like, self doubts and fears and stuff. Yep. And You'll I'm, be alone forever. Every girl right. will hate you forever. That's right. <laughs> the entire female population of the planet has just rejected me because I saved my money for this pretty little uh, gold bracelet. Oh, that and makes me so look. sad. I know. Oh. <laughs> it, it, it works out. There were Jill, women. come on, Jill. Hello, Jill. <laughs> Jill. But, but but what 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 my dad said is he goes, you know, one one girl may she may not like you, but. If, if, if you keep asking, you know, and, and you keep pursuing people and, and you, you approach people, you know, from the heart with genuine concern and, and genuine, mm-hmm. you know, interest, like someone will, will like you. So 10 people may say no, 
but you only yes. need one to say yes. And so if you find 10 quality, you know, mental health providers or that you presume to be qualified, and let's say they're afraid of BPD or they can't handle it or they got their own issues, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and they say, no, you only need that one good record label, that one good Jill to yep. accept the, uh, the, the, the gold the bracelet. Gold bracelet. So find your Jill or no, get away from your Jill, but find. Uh, yeah, run away from your Jill and find the right one. <laughs> that's right. Just because one person says something, it doesn't say anything about you. That's another thing that I've been focusing a lot on recent episodes is this idea of zooming out, you know, and not personalizing everything so much. It's so easy to make everything so much about us and our tiny little world. And it's very, very common. And it's been happening for thousands of years back to the Stoic philosophers of saying, zoom out, don't personalize things so much. Think of things in a bigger context. And just because someone, even the best BPD therapist, you could re- you could come up to them on their worst possible day where maybe their marriage is breaking down and you call them up and they're like, I'm not taking any new clients. And I know that back in my like most emotionally dysregulated state, I would have been like, I would have made that all about me, you know? And we just we never know what's going on with people and all we can do is be a good advocate for ourselves and keep pushing. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and recognizing that it's that family in the head, Lorna Smith Benjamin talks about that family in the head. It's that chorus that we have in our head that can perpetuate our pathology, whether it's BPD or uh, other factors or issues that someone's contending with, but also we, we can change the voice. We, we really can and we're such adaptive creatures. Like I, I, I use the example of, of cigarettes, right? Is that, you know, I mean, I think cigarettes are gross and I don't smoke, but, you know, everyone's allowed, you know, their own choice. But um, <laughs> but but um, but our body w- will adapt to even ingesting poison. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you when you have your, your first cigarette, right, your body coughs. It's like this is gross. Girl, we don't want it. We don't want it. But then if you keep doing it, your body's like, OK, we're going to do this. And it it'll adjust, it'll adapt, but it can be the same thing for positive things as well. Just like mm-hmm. working out. Like if, if you're exercising right about that, you know, fourth, fifth time, you know, you go to the gym, it's that voice in your head. That's like, this sucks. I don't want to so do true. this. Let's go home. Let's watch, you know, Netflix or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, go back. Um, and, but if, if you push through, then your body's like, oh, okay, we're going to do this. Like your yeah. brain will adapt to what you want it to. But if if you see it as an enemy, as something you're not aligned with, yeah, then I I think you're you're scratching up a, a, a just up a pole that I mean it's it's just almost impossible to to surmount. And so I, I talk with with my clients all the time about that you know there's three people in therapy right it has to be me you and BPD because <laughs> we have to separate BPD from the individual because when people say oh yes. I'm BPD I immediately correct them and say no you have BPD. Right. And and I I, I think we we talked about this in the first. Or like, I am a borderline. I even go further with it because I say like, I identify with the traits of BPD, right? I even take it even a little bit further than that. Like, I don't even say that I have it because I feel like have, but everybody's different too. I think that's really important because saying I have could also be very empowering for someone. But I found that like, it helps me to say, I identify with the traits and the symptoms of it because Mm -hmm. then I feel like, I don't know. It just feels a little less, it feels separate from me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, from, from who you are, it's something that that you're, you're contending with, but Mm -hmm. I think when we attach it to our, to our sense of self, right. Then it's really hard. And, you know, when we talk about like alignment, sometimes like if, if my clients are having a very difficult time or there's been a resurgence in symptoms or something has happened, you know, where they've had issue, uh, uh, issue of abandonment or that emptiness is exacerbated for whatever it may be. And, mm. and then it feels like in session, I'm like, okay, I'm the only one pulling forward and I'll bring it to their attention. There has to be immediacy where you're saying, well, wait, I think in, in, I think it's, it's kind of me against you and BPD. I said, you, you and I have to align against it. We got to, we got to go against that family in the head that is so negative and so pejorative and we have to push back on it. And when we're aligned, then we're identifying, you know, those, those internal statements, that internal critic we're going against, we're reframing all of that self-hate. We're reframing all that sense of brokenness 
you know, brokenness may, may exist, but so, so does super glue, right? So yeah. it's, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, we, we got to put it together. And if you feel that way, then let, let's explore it. Let's pull it apart because that's not what BPD wants you to do. BPD wants you to say, well, you're broken and you just eat it on a regular yes. basis. Well, it's time to spit it out. Ah, yeah, it's so true. I love that. It is time to spit it out. <laughs> well, this is actually a perfect segue to one of the listener questions that I have because it's all about shame, like the shameful feelings that come with uh, BPD. So this voicemail is from Nicole. So I I save them. I'm going to play them. And I think that should be good audio quality. Here we go. Hi, Molly. Hi, I'm Nicole. I'm Paul from Spain. Uh, I'm 26 years old. I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD and BPD terms. I just wanted to ask you, how do you deal with shame or guilt from like mistakes or people you hurt in the past when you didn't have control over your emotional dysregulation? Um, like, how do you make amends? with yourselves and others i feel like a big part of my recovery is that i have problems dealing with the shame or guilt of the stuff or the people i've hurt i mean part of it is i've taken responsibility and i apologize but i feel like i don't know it's difficult for me to move past the shame or guilt from it what strategies to use to not feel like a bad person Okay. So thank you so much, Nicole, for reaching out. And so Dan, what's your reaction to that? I get questions like that a lot of people are at this pivotal moment where they go, oh, wow. I call it the, I am the problem moment, but the kind of like the good, I am the problem moment, not in a shaming way, but going like, whoa, maybe I'm the common denominator in a lot of my chaos. That was true for me, again, not speaking for anyone else. I just had this moment where I just thought that I had this chaotic life and I just, and I attracted all these horrible people to me. And, and then I realized, wait, I'm also part of these dynamics. And when I looked honestly at it, I realized, yes, I had been hurt, but I had also hurt people. And then having that moment of self-awareness is empowering, but I feel like people don't talk enough about the pain, the initial pain and guilt that comes with that first moment of self-awareness. And I felt like um, Nicole really articulated that well. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that it's developing really good insight. I think it's, it sounds like that, that Nicole is, is certainly developing her, her degree of insight. She's recognizing um, certainly her influence over over her behaviors and her influence on, on those around her as well. And the, the thing that, 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 it, that I picked up from that, that she mentioned several times was what can she do about it? How, how can she manage that, that shame for, 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 and to use her, her description, the mistakes that, that she made or, or people that, that she has, has hurt, you know, one of the things about BPD, again, to go back to that family in the head, right. That, that chorus so her, her chorus is very loud at, at this time, right? But she has the initial ingredient, which is insight. You know, a lot of individuals with personality stores, the common denominator across all um, personality stores is lack of insight. And it, it's hard to work with an individual who doesn't recognize the insight and then take that second step, which, which she has done, which is to recognize, hey, you know, I, I can change things because I have to take some responsibility, but how do I do that? Because the shame can be so overwhelming. And I think the first thing that I, I would recommend is that, so she recognizes what, what is that family in the head telling her? And that family in the head could very well be mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, lover, friend, boss, who, whoever it may be. And because it's not just one individual, it's this chorus that's inside of her that, that's telling her, you know, how could you do that? I mean, you did that because you're broken. You did that because you're stupid. You did that because you're this, 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 or this. And that just continues to feed that BPD. So if, if we pull that BPD out outside of her and we're like, okay, so now she can deal with it. It's not who she is. It's regrettably something that, that she's contending with. So she, I think she needs to look at it and say, okay, wait, what are, what are the things that I'm saying to myself? 
How do I engage in self-forgiveness? First of all, I think we have to recognize everybody makes mistakes. I mean, it happens to, to everyone for various reasons. Doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person. And I think that we have to look at that and she has to say, okay, wait. So I've, I've, it doesn't mean, you know, that you don't take responsibility, but, but you do. But you look at it and say, wait, I don't think that I deserve a punishment plan for it, which is a term that, that I use when people, they punish themselves to a point where they've suffered enough and then they allow themselves to feel better. The, the problem with that is, is that it is re-engaging in old patterns of, of very early abusers that tended to be internalized. And we want to break that. That's part of what feeds that BPD. So I, I would say that she needs to first forgive herself and say, you know what, everybody makes mistakes. And she mentioned about going back and taking ownership of it. Man, that is that is amazing. That is really hard to do because it's super scary, particularly because that family in the head is telling you what? Well, if you apologize, they're going to rip you from, from one end to the other. I mean, they're going to let you have it. And I think that that's very telling of the people that, easy to say, hard to do, of people who should be in your life. Everybody's going to make mistakes. And if somebody punishes you for taking ownership, then is that somebody you should really have in your life? I mean, and sometimes that's mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, you know, people that that you want in your life. And we have to then realize how do we insulate ourselves from those mm-hmm. things? And uh, I mean, that, with, I, I could go on for really long with, yeah. with this. One, I think that this is something really common for folks with, with, with BPD. And just so to nutshell it, what I would say is first, you know, she has to engage in self-forgiveness. Yeah. You have to call out that family in the head that's telling you, you know, you, you shouldn't have done it. You were wrong to do that. You're a horrible person. No, you're not. You're a person. And yes. everybody makes mistakes. And I, you know, and we go and, you know, we can make reparations, which is you go back and you apologize. But when you apologize, then I think we have to say, okay, how do I not do it again? And that's where going from maladaptive behavior, because typically what perpetuates BPD are those maladaptive patterns, which could be screaming, yelling at somebody, throwing something at somebody, hurting yourself in order to try to hurt someone else, something like that. I think that we have to switch those to adaptive strategies. And that is taking reparations, going and apologizing and saying, you know, look, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, it, it's my mistake, you know, for, for, for example, and I'll, I'll take full, full ownership, you know, so last night, my, uh, my, my wife helps me with, with my practice. And um, right now I'm, I'm just overloaded with, with assessments and things. I, I said, yes, too many times, Molly, sometimes we do that. Don't we, we just say, we yes. do. and so now I'm kind of dealing with the tail end of that. But so, so she was explaining while I'm writing a report, she's explaining about, oh, this needs to be on this. And I snapped at her, you know, and it wasn't, wasn't loud or anything, but, but it was snappy. And then, so when I finished with that report, you know, I went and I, I apologized and she said, oh, you know what? It's, it's okay. I know you're under a lot of stress. And I wrote back to her cause we were texting cause um, she was out of the house. She didn't run out of the house because of my snap. She had somewhere to go, but um, <laughs> just to clarify. And, and I said, well, it's not okay. And it's yeah. something, you know, that, that, that this is telling me that, you know, I, 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 I need to make change, right. Because yeah. the people in my life, you know, I don't, I don't want to snap. Right. Yeah. I want to have greater sense of control. And, and this, this, this goes back to your, to, to your listener. Mm. It's making those changes. Going, yeah. recognizing when you're overloaded, recognizing those situations and not falling into those BPD maladaptive patterns, but using adaptive ones, challenging that chorus that's the, that, that's in your head and also accepting yourself that you're a person yeah. and people make mistakes. They do. And I feel like Nicole isn't giving herself enough credit. You know, like it's, I yeah. feel like sometimes we can be such rigid taskmasters to ourselves, you know, like it's never enough. Contrary to what's often said about people who identify with BPD is that we are not evil, manipulative, awful creatures that want to see people suffer. Quite often following behaviors that we regret, we have horrible shame spirals, ruminating and ruminating. All that you can do is apologize and then show differently in your actions in the future. Back in the past, when I exploded, I had a hard time 
taking ownership for it. I felt like I had to double down on on it so that I would not feel stupid. I'm not going to say, wow, I shouldn't have snapped. So I had to justify like, you should have probably been nicer to me or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And now I will immediately just say, I'm really sorry. I snapped. I'm feeling really stressed. This is not about you. I'm just going to go take a minute, listen to some music and immediately what that does for the other person, it doesn't take away a snapping, but it almost immediately makes it better for them because they go, oh, it's not about me. The gift we can give them is, look, I'm working on this. I'm so sorry. This is not about you. I love you. I'm going to come back when I feel a little bit more calm. And even just that will prompt me to go, how am I feeling? Am I, is my heart racing? Am I feeling really anxious? Like I need to remove myself and then come back to a state of calm. I think a lot of us with BPD, we want so badly to connect, but our jump reactions are the exact opposite of connection. So I always say to my listeners, we have to take that time to create the space between our big feelings and our reactions. And if we can just decide in that little bit of space, in that moment, I want to connect with my partner and my knee jerk reaction of what I want to say is probably not likely to get me that connection that I want. So let me take a second to decide. I know that you uh, have another client soon. So I (laughs) want to make sure that we can at least get to another listener question. Let's take this one. Hi, Molly. Uh, This is Andrea. Um, I have a question. Um, How did you open up dialogue in a conversation with your parents? Um, Now that I'm getting older and, like, starting to look back on, like, how I was as a teenager, how my parents got along, and, like, how me and my mom, like, don't really have, like, that good of a relationship right now just from all the trauma that she put me through and, honestly, the trauma that I put her through is... A teenager. I can't say that I'm innocent, and nor do I want to say that I'm innocent. I would like to put all my faults out on the table. Um, it's just really hard for us to communicate. We've never been good at communicating. She was always like a friend and not a parent, but still someone that I didn't really talk to about things that you need to talk to your parents about. How did you open up that dialogue to have like a calm conversation, but still get out everything you felt, your perspective on your childhood? the trauma that you endured and things like that. Um, Thank you so much for everything you do. Love you. Poof. What a, what a question. Something I love about my listeners. They're so self-aware. It's really powerful to be evil, evil, (laughs) (laughs) to be even able to admit that I did some things wrong. My parents did some things wrong. I'm reading Gabor Mate's new book right now, the Myth, myth of normal. And he talked about how, blaming parents just he said that there's just no point in the blame because you know a lot of times trauma goes so far back what did their parents go through what did their parents go through and it doesn't absolve anyone of any big t trauma like any horrible things that have happened but again it's like i love how this listener is sort of taking a zoomed out approach you know of saying like there were lots of different factors at play i know that there are good ways of bringing up your childhood to your parents and not so great ways. I employed a not so great way, which was like basically screaming and exploding at my parents and saying, do you have any idea what you did to me? And I can tell you that conversation didn't go well. I have compassion for myself because I feel like I know that the really hurt child part of me came out in that conversation. But then I had a much more adult to adult calm conversation with my parents that came later where I asked them if they would read a book and, and I was compassionate to what they had been through as children too. And I just asked if we could find a new way of, of relating to each other. And and I asked them, I just need you to listen to me right now. And then you can respond. These are some things that I did. Um, but I'd love to hear, I'm sure in therapy, you maybe help facilitate some of these conversations potentially, or help prepare your clients for them. So I'd love to hear your reaction to that question. I, I commend you on, on, on doing that, Molly, because I think, you know, first, firstly, um, that BPD seemed to be driving that, that, that initial behavior, right? If I get enough hate out and if you can make your parents swallow enough of the hate and pain that you feel, yeah. then you'll feel a sense of retribution and okay. 
with human beings, we don't really work that way, right? There isn't enough hate that you can espouse to someone and they swallow it. And then all of a sudden you're like, you can check that box and be like, well, that's it. That's, that's not how human beings work. And I actually have several, several videos on my, on my channel that, that address this, how to talk mm. to a partner about it, how to talk to a parent mm. about it. And I have had parents who have, who have written me um, and who have said, you know, what can we do? You know, what are, what are some things that they can do? And then others that have said, you know, we've, we've watched your videos together and, you know, my, my child and I, and we, we went through that. Um, and I, we talk a lot about parents and, um, where my clients are with, with their parents. And, you know, I, I think that we add, or we have a tendency to add a level of volition to our parents, which is that, you know, oh, well, you know, they meant to neglect me. They meant to do this and this, this was all intentional. It goes back to your statement, you know, about manipulation. The thing about manipulation and what's confusing about it is that for real manipulation, there has to be intent right? Is that you have to intend to deceive someone, trick someone. The issue is, is with complex behaviors like when BPD, and I'm not saying that some folks aren't manipulative, and that, or, but I'm certainly not saying everybody is. But with people who don't understand themselves and have unstable self-image, which is a component of BPD, they can come across as being manipulative, particularly when we associate it with high emotional reactivity. So if we're going to talk about something that is so core, such as our issue with our parents or what they did to us or what they allowed us, or as we perceive that they allowed us to experience, which can sometimes be abuse, neglect, a whole host of other factors as well. And I think that in talking to our parents, I I think first we have to realize that what is our goal of that conversation? And you have to go into it without preconceived expectations because that's going to give that family in the head a lot of opportunity to start playing with your brain. So I think that we have to say, look, what do you want out of it? But, and I'm sorry, isn't going to be enough. Um, When, uh, now I'm going to tell you, I got another story for you, Molly. I got another story. So when, when I was on my, my, my internship, right. And um, so uh, there was a client who was transitioning from, from, uh, the previous intern to me. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd read the notes and previously what they were working on was her confronting her father about the sexual abuse. And, um, you know, we, we won't go, in, go into any, any de- detail of, of what she experienced, but it really did affect how she saw herself and, you know, how, how she treated herself. I mean, as, as, as you can imagine, when your abuser gets internalized, it becomes part of how you see yourself and how you manage yourself. So what they were working on is her getting up the courage, I got some air quotes here, courage to confront her dad. And when I was reading these notes, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is not good. Because the reason why it wasn't good is she empowered her abuser. Because what you're saying is, is you're going to go to your abuser and say, you abused me. You did this, this, and this. You owe me an apology. You owe me reparation or whatever it is. And, but you're empowering the abuser. So my issue was, and, and ironically, is that she actually confronted her dad between the time that her old therapist left and I was coming in. So I'm coming in to the aftermath of this, which I don't believe is it's clinically appropriate. I think it, it's fine to bring that up, you know, to, to your abuser, confront your abuser, but don't, I think if we go into it with an expectation, you owe me an apology. Apologies are nice, but you can't say once you apologize, then I won't feel traumatized anymore. I will have contended and dealt with this sense of abuse, loss, hurt, pain, rejection, all that other stuff. So she confronted her dad and so it, I, and and this 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 might be hard. So some people may may may, may want to skip it, but it, it's also genuine. And her dad said to her, "I don't know what you're complaining about. You liked it." Uh-huh. And so she comes to me. It's completely distraught, right? And that could, I'm sure, up upend so much progress in therapy. Just that one oh, moment, absolutely. I would imagine, because she she had empowered him, right? Uh-huh. She empowered him again because it was like, well, give me that that you know take your ownership of the horrible things you did. And of course he didn't. And then, so then, you know, then we're going through where, I mean, 
massive regression, cutting mm-hmm. suicide, suicide watches, inpatient stays. I mean, all the, and so what and you can understand is, that, you know? Oh, absolutely. 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 So what we did is, so I said, all right, here's, here's what we're going to do. So I told her, I said, we're going to wash out the past as best we can. doesn't mean we're going to reject it, but we're going to mm-hmm. wash it out. And that means we're going to be like, you know what? Because what I want you to do, and this is what I told her, I want you to empower yourself. Mm-hmm. That person does not deserve for you to empower them. You empower yourself. And you do that by saying, you know what? What you did to me was inappropriate. What you did was wrong and you mm. will not do it to me again. And it's, yes. it's, it's an assertion and it's a strength. Now that particular- Or continue to define my life. I've been wanting to do an episode on forgiveness. Forgiveness is like a triggering topic in itself for people who struggle with mental illness. Some things are unforgivable, like your parents actually abusing you. I read something really beautiful about like, there's a difference between forgiving and letting go and moving forward. And it's like what you said, it's almost like you're going to cleanse yourself of it. Put yourself through like a a washing machine speed cycle, let it all go. And to say, I'll no longer let this define me anymore. Yes. Yes. And absolutely. And over the year that that we worked together, um, because it was during my internship, which is just a year. And I'll I'll, I'll tell you how how it ends up in a second, because it's because it's a good ending. But Mm. um, but again, and I think to, to go back to your to your caller too, is that you know, I don't think that we should go and say, you know, you did this, you did that, you did. I mean, that to me, that that, that example is so intense and so so extreme. Um, and but what what I am saying is to go back, the point of the story is is that you can't empower those other people. We have to have conceptualizations of what you want out of discussing BPD yeah. or how you feel or your perspective with your with your folks. Yeah. Understand what, what you want out of it. And ultimately I just believe that there's no sorry that's deep enough. I believe that, that as particularly if we're talking about, you know, abuse, neglect, I mean, there, there's yeah. certainly extreme issues there and we don't know about, about your caller and we don't want to make any assumptions, but I think, mm. you know, what do we do to empower ourselves? How do yeah. you forgive yourself? Mm. What kind of things? And if, if, if you were difficult, and all teenagers are difficult to varying degree. That's what I'm parents, saying. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Could, so we, we could link Nicole with, with your current caller too, right? Is that we yeah. got to forgive ourselves too. And yeah. sometimes what it is, it's explaining, look, you know, I've been diagnosed with, with BPD. This is what it is. And please educate your folks and say, if you look it up, you're going to find a whole host of horrible things. Be prepared to give them the content you want them to see first and even say, when you go out there, you're going to see some stigmatizing, awful stuff, but I need you to, can you, for me, listen to these podcast episodes or these YouTube videos, and then can we talk about it or listen together? You know, sometimes having them just listen on their own allows people time to really process and absorb instead of like sitting there and kind of like staring at them while they watch it. Yeah. And then, and no, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And just to, just to kind of tell you how, how it rounds out, because I, I think- Yeah, people, what's the ending with this so, um, She was a really good mechanic. Over the year, you know, that, that over the year that we worked together, we, we talked about her skill and embracing her skill. And mm. um, she is one of the premier low rider creators. She creates premium low riders. And uh, some, sometimes she'll be in the magazine or whatever. And man, she's just- That's she's just so cool. Ass. I mean, there's no other way about it. And it, it goes back to empowering yourself. Yeah. And you've got to, as hard as it is, you've got to have that sense of self-acceptance and appreciation and say, you know what, these are my skills. This is what I'm good at. And this is what I got. And you know what? I'm I'm gonna make my mark using these things. And that's what she did. She's one of the strongest people I've ever met. You know, and that just goes to show, Dan, that's another thing that I always love about interviewing you. You're so proud of your clients. It's just so lovely. And I feel like anyone listening to, we talked about, and I know Dan won't toot his own horn because that's just not the kind of person that you are, but there are clinicians out there that will fight for you and don't buy into the stigma. They're out there and you can find them. 
I know that you have a client coming up again know, soon, Dan. No, it's totally fine. Yeah, and and I know I, I apologize that we're we're getting cut short, Ma. But I mean, I, I'd be happy to come back if if you'd have me, and we can we can do. You a, are going to one hundred percent be a returning guest. We will do more. I would love to have you on again to do more listener questions. So if you have a question for Doctor Fox, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com and click the voicemail, and I'll just start saving up those voicemails for the next time we have one. It's been such a pleasure, Dan. And thanks so much for taking the time to hang out with me and my listeners and lovely to hang out with your listeners too. Good luck with your client, Dan. And I can't wait to have you on again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again, Molly. Thanks for having me. And we'll, All right. we'll talk again soon. Well, that's all we have for today on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me as always. Thank you so much to Dr. Fox for coming on and providing his guidance and wisdom. If you'd like to hear your voice on the podcast, go ahead and submit a voicemail at backfromtheborderline.com and click that little microphone icon. If you feel like you're ready to take your recovery journey to a more spiritual place, you can sign up for premium access so that you can dig into the Hero's Journey series by visiting my website, backfromtheborderline.com and clicking unlock premium access or also clicking the link in the episode description. And speaking of the episode description, you'll find all sorts of additional resources, including links to Dr. Fox's YouTube channel, as well as links to purchase his new book, Complex Borderline Personality Disorder. It's a really, really good one, and I highly recommend you check it out. So until next time, I'm sending you all my love, huge hugs, and a reminder that anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. I hope the rest of your day, night, morning is fantastic. You deserve it. Speak to you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.